Welcome to the St Albans podcast, bringing you news, views and reviews for the city and district of St Albans. Welcome along to another edition of the St Albans podcast with me, Danny Smith. Coming up, we're going to be hearing from uh, Peter Kelleher, a local resident who is involved with uh, an exhibition to um, help uh, raise funds for an ME support group that meets locally. Uh, We'll also have the latest book recommendations from our very own literary correspondent, Claire Hobber. But before that, let's get the latest local news from the one and only, your friend of mine, it's Matt Adams from the Hearts Advertiser. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are you? No one cares. Move on. <laughs> What's happening in the I world? I do like to ask. Yeah, of course you do. Right. Well, I know. Right. Well, obviously, the big story of the week is the local um, district council elections, which we'll come on to shortly. But just to show that we're not just focusing on that, I thought I'd talk about a couple of other things. Um, first off, this is a quite a nice story. A St Albans author is partnering with an LGBT plus young people's charity um, to bring stories about diverse families to primary schools. Now, uh, non-binary Harry Woodgate wrote an illustrated Grandad's Camper and won the Ch- Waterstones Children's Book Prize, best illustrated book for this year. And now he's working with a charity just like us to produce a video reading of this. Um, and it's um, going to be um, put on for schools as a writing prompt as part of School Diversity Week, which is June 20th, 24th. Oh, wow. And it's all about a girl and her granddad who goes on, they go on a special camper van trip to remember um, the late Gramps, who was granddad's partner, who passed away. Uh, Harry is um, is from St Albans, and that's why, obviously, why we're doing it. Now, I, what what strikes me this is, you know, that, that how far we've come since um, Section Twenty Eight, when the Thatcher government was preventing schools from even talking about um, non heterosexual relationships, uh, and it's just, you know, it, it I, I just, it's just really quite positive sign of you know how times have progressed yeah and and i mean you know recently we talked of st albans pride as well didn't we and and it is nice to think that we we live in an area uh, and in a community that is as progressive as it seems to be i I always say that slightly cautiously because i'm sure that there are those uh listening perhaps uh who are from that community who might say well yeah that that's all well and good but there's also you know Mm -hmm. other things i'm sure we're not there yet but it does seem no, like... No, no, we're never going to, you know, we're still, you know, there's still prejudice and there's still bigotry and all sorts of things going on where, you know, that we are not in that, you know, utopia. But um, I think this is a positive move, you know, really, that just to, you know, to just take it as a, a standard thing. It's another story read out to kids. Um, and... Um, you know, it's it's lovely. This is an Auburn's author behind yeah, it. Yeah. Well, well, congratulations to Harry. Uh, what a what an achievement. I mean, not only for for the for the book and for what the book uh, represents, but also for winning that children's book prize as well. You know, the, the yeah. Waterstones Children's Book Prize, best illustrated book of twenty twenty two. That's not too shabby, is it? No, that's a pretty uh, impressive achievement to be. Yeah. So well done to, yeah. to local author there, um, uh, Harry uh, Woodgate. And uh, and if you want to find out more about Just Like Us, there is a website which is justlikeus.org, and we will link to that in the description of this podcast episode right now. Our very own literary correspondent Claire Hobber is with us right now. Hello, Claire. Hello, Danny. Hi. And uh, this month, um, your your uh, inspiration for the books you are you are recommending for us to look at, uh, you are looking at anti-war novels. Yeah. So I guess um, all of us probably have our eyes on on Ukraine and what's going on there. 
And for the last month or so, my tactic has been to um, find things that would divert us, that would take us away from this horrifying situation. But I guess um, as it escalates, there's talk of perhaps the war expanding. And um, I was wondering about looking at what other people have said about war in the past, or, you know, even a war that seems justified and seems to be for a very good cause, both at the time and retrospectively, and um, what it does to people. So um, this time I'm dealing with the subject head on and we are looking at war novels that have sprung out of the war experience of the people that wrote them. Yeah, um, and and it, of course, it's the sort of thing where there's been a lot, of, a lot written about about this very subject, and lots of books that are set during great wars. There are, you know, lots of books that that, that t- tackle this from a variety of angles. Uh, but tell us about the first one that you've chosen. So I've chosen Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, which was published in 1972, and it's a very well known book. A lot of people regard it as um a great influence and a great source and a sort of phenomenal work of literature. And uh, my reaction reading it was, what? I just didn't expect what I read. It's very um, fractured and uh, a bizarre array of things go on. So the central, the central experience, the central scene is our character, our protagonist, Billy Pilgrim, who's an American soldier, is trapped. He's taken prisoner by the Germans in Dresden uh, during the last years of World War II, and he gets caught in the Allied firebombing of Dresden. Now, it's the nature of war that um, you tend to hear about the atrocities that the other side committed, like the Nazis committing the Holocaust, but you hear less about the atrocities that our own side committed, like the firebombing of Dresden, where the entire city, soldiers and civilians alike, were just obliterated by uh, absolute carpet bombing, which culminated in um, so much explosive going off that there was what they call a firestorm, where it was just a complete conflagration of everything burning. So our central character, Billy Pilgrim, is um, sheltering in a cellar beneath a slaughterhouse, slaughterhouse number five, an an abattoir, um, with his captors, at the point where this happens and actually survived through the firebombing of Dresden. This based in Vonnegut. You wouldn't think it was possible to survive it, but some people did. And Vonnegut himself, the author, was one of them when he was serving as a soldier during World War Two. And it feels like that was such a traumatic experience, both for the character Bill, Billy Pilgrim and also for the author, Kurt Vonnegut, that their reality fractures so... There's an episode in the book where Billy Pilgrim is captured by aliens, taken to the planet Trophimador, put in a zoo there, and in with him is put the pornography star called Montana Wildhack, which I think is an amazing <laughs> name, uh, Montana Wildhack, and they are ex- the Trophimadorians then expect them to breed. So it's like this weird sort of fantasy episode fantasy in all sorts of senses uh, and the this is perhaps the child of uh, science fiction writer Kilgore Trout another amazing name created there by Vonnegut so this is going on um, as part of the narrative 
and so is the firestorm of Dresden. So it's almost like the character kind of fractured at the point where he underwent such a horrendous experience. And I've heard it said that we as the reader are expected almost to act as the psychiatrist and kind of help put him back together and try and figure out what's going on for our character during this story. So a very compelling read that's influenced a lot of people. Mm. So uh, when so you say that this book was set during the, the sort of the tail end of World War Two, um, wh when did the book come out? Because it, it is 70, a, a classic. 72, sort of 30 years later. So how long he spent writing it, whether all that time he was kicking this about, you know, and, and sort of shaping it into a book. I don't know. Okay, um, but but uh, you know this is a book that it says here on the thing I've just looked up. Uh, it's it's uh, been selected by the Modern Library as one of the one hundred best novels of all time. Uh, that that's yeah. that's quite a claim, isn't it? To be top one hundred books ever. Um, so so uh, clearly clearly one that that perhaps we should look out for. And and do you feel that even though it's as old as it is, that that does it does the writing does the message feel as relevant today as it probably did when it came out? I think it's, yes, I guess that's probably why I've included it today is, um, I guess, if it comes to any conclusions at all, uh, the conclusion is that things will go on repeating itself. So um, one of the motifs is um, a bird song. So at the start of the novel, it sings pooty wheat sounding like it's a question and Billy Pilgrim can't answer what is that question and what's the answer and at the end of the novel he's still none the wiser so it's, it, I guess it's saying that after all this after all this war and so forth what have we achieved it, there's a sort of feeling of futility okay but um, as with uh, as with at least one of the other choices there's humour and wit, and it's a very lively read. And it's not a long book. It's not going to. It's not going to um, lay you low reading this. It's a really interesting read. Okay, and I'm assuming then he must have written this with the backdrop of the Vietnam War, uh, but but using another war to 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 sort of make the points he's trying to make. Yeah, I'm sure that if you thought war was futile following World War Two, which you know did really have, I guess, some moral. Um, weight to it then how would you feel about the Vietnam War even worse you know so I'm sure that that will have reinforced the perspective he already had yeah okay. so so a, a book that that straddles uh, diff several different genres from the sounds of things then it's a classic it's science fiction it's war it's historical fiction it it, it seems to, to to be several of those things but but pulls it off rather well from from what you're saying this that's slaughterhouse five by kurt vonnegut that's the first of uh, claire's choices uh, this month we'll hear more from claire a little bit later on this week's podcast Joining me now on the St Albans podcast is Peter Kelleher from the Hertfordshire ME CFS support group uh, hello Peter hi Danny hi so uh, thank you for joining us. Now, that's a lot of letters to begin with there, M-E-C-F-S. Uh, um, so explain to us what that is and what, and what the support group does. Yeah, well, uh, M-E or uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, as it trips off the tongue, um, is a condition um, that causes extreme fatigue. And we're not talking about just being tired. We're talking about, uh, as my daughter describes it, um, the worst hangover you've ever had uh, coupled with the flu. So if you've ever had the flu, 
or or the worst hangover you've ever had. If you put those two together, uh, that's how it is. It's debilitating post uh, post uh, exertional uh, malaise. Essentially, you're absolutely exhausted. Cannot do even simple things. Got tremendous brain fog and, and confusion. You can't get the words out. You can't sometimes, you know, some people are housebound, some people are bedbound. It's an awful condition. And it, it covers quite a wide range of uh, entry points, if you like. Um, so the CFS stands for chronic fatigue syndrome, but it's also been called post-viral fatigue syndrome. Uh, and now we're seeing with uh, long COVID, um, you know, we're seeing, it's very, very similar in that you've had an infection or a virus uh, and your body should have recovered from it. Um, but your immune something's gone wrong with the immune system, generally speaking, or it's or it's playing up, or or something's not quite quite right. It's not it's not gone back to normal, um, and so you're left with this dreadful fatigue. Uh, you can't you know you can't describe it really. It's just awful. I, I had a friend who had this, and the problem that my friend had was for a very long time uh, was unable to get it accurately diagnosed, and even when they did, there was then a struggle to be to have it sort of recognized that that, that that they even had the condition it it this was some time ago now are, are things still like that or are they better now for those who suffer from this it's, it's, it's a bit patchwork it's it's better in places it's still like that in some places um the problem is there's no definitive uh blood test or anything that says yeah you've got chronic fatigue they have to rule out the doctors you know rule out the more common things first you know low thyroid lack of iron all those things that can make you tired. Um, and eventually, when they've ruled everything out, um, they come to the conclusion of, well, it must be chronic fatigue because it can't be anything else. Um, the and- problem being that a lot of doctors still think it's a psychological condition in that you're imagining it. I mean, in fact, the NICE guidelines have just changed to sort of flag up that, it, yeah, it's definitely a neurological condition. There's something gone wrong physically with your body or with your uh, energy cells, however it is, you know, however it all works together and we don't know um, and so because the condition fluctuates people have a hard time being believed so one day you're able to do stuff next day you're completely wiped out one hour you're able to do stuff the next hour you're completely wiped out it just fluctuates so people lose friends because you cancel going out you know you've made some arrangements suddenly you're, you're just are completely not up to it it's just really really hard for people. people sometimes struggle to understand what they cannot see and and having a, a hidden illness is, is, is you know people don't appreciate perhaps that the added um, thing you have to to deal with with a hidden illness is, is people believing you you know is, is your own sort of integrity you know aside from all the other ailments and, and 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 side effects that one would have with with the condition that having that extra one of of being visibly okay um, and people can't yeah it, it must be so hard I can only imagine how hard that must be for those who it's- suffer from it. It's very difficult. And of course, there's, you know, other aligned conditions, if you like, like fibromyalgia, which is a pain for, for no obvious reason. You know, if you break your ankle, it's going to hurt. Mm. But if you've got pain running through your body intermittently or all the time, the painkillers won't touch, you know, it's difficult. But when I, you know, when we take my daughter out, we take her out in a wheelchair now. Um, if we go to a restaurant, she'll she'll get out of the wheelchair and, and, and sit on a, on a chair because she doesn't, want to regard herself as disabled you know but of course people look at it and go well what's wrong with her then so well you know she can walk a couple of steps that's about it really. yeah yeah it's it's it, annoying isn't it Be- uh, annoying is probably an understatement but to think that if somebody had a plaster cast on their leg 
and they had crutches, no one would question why they have crutches. And yet no. it seems sometimes people feel they have some sort of right to question if they can't obviously see why a person has to use some sort of aid in, in some way. That's, that's very true. And, uh, you know, if, you had, if I've been on crutches on the train before, people offer you a seat, you know, and all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, my daughter's been sitting on the floor before because there's, there's nowhere to sit. And so so, um, so you're part of this um, support group. How, how long have you been part of that? Uh, well, I've actually not been part of it very long. Um, just the last few months, I've joined as a trustee of the uh, of the Hertfordshire um, MECFS support group. And um, it started uh, a few years ago with our lovely founder, uh, Maxine, who um, suffers from chronic fatigue herself um, and, and found that there was no real help, uh, you know, locally uh, to, to, to support people. And so she started initially uh, with a colleague, Mike, um, a St. Albans-based uh, support group uh, and that's grown and grown and um, now it's expanded to Hertfordshire because there's no other real support in Hertfordshire uh, you know in terms of ongoing support of of members um, and so you know a couple of extra trustees Gaynor and myself uh, have joined um, and we're joined by some wonderful volunteers as well Jenny and uh, Lawrence uh, have recently joined us so we've we're building up a team as, as the numbers keep increasing sadly so it's something that's clearly um, you know needed. There's a need for it. Okay, we're going to have more from Peter Kelleher from uh, the Hertfordshire MECFS support group a little bit later on this week's podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Aikman. Join me, local author Howard Linsky, and St Albans podcast producer Sam Rolfe for this St Albans film guide. Each week, one of us will guide you through the new releases at the cinema and on streaming services. We'll also give you our choice of the best films to watch on UK free-to-air TV for the forthcoming week. So if you're a film lover, join us for a chat about all things movie-related every week as part of the St Albans podcast. New episodes will be released every Friday morning. For more information, visit stalbanspodcast.com or find us where any good podcasts are found. More now from Matt Adams from the Hearts Advertiser. Matt. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Um, this week is uh, this year's Mental Health Awareness Week. Um, runs until runs between May the 9th and May the 15th. Um, and we've um, we've done a lot on this every year. Um, what um, we're putting in the uh, one of the things we're putting the focus on this week is how a St Albans charity offers mental health support. Says they're facing the biggest demand in their 25 year history. Uh, Youth Talk, which provides um, around 100 counselling sessions per week and supports over 400 young people per year. Um, with their emotional well-being and mental health, said that they, it's been unprecedented. The demand, you know, they they have a huge waiting list of about 100 people on there, and they're saying, you know, when a young person is brave enough to take that first step towards getting help, they shouldn't be kept waiting. They really want help, but they don't have the resources to do to support everyone at the point they reach out to them. So it's quite worrying, you know, that this we've reached this sort of level, and then a lot of this is on the back of the pandemic, and you know, the the, the impact of that. Mm. um it's um and you talk as well that the reach that they have and the work that they do it it, it never ceases to amaze me really uh, i was speaking to a friend recently and i happened to mention uh youth talk uh, uh it was it was I mean, it was my birthday not too long ago and i wanted to support them in some way and i mentioned youth talk and she said to me they helped me out when i was a teenager they were really good and uh they were there for me and and as i said to us i didn't realize they were going for that long she pointed out she's a lot <laughs> younger than me and they have been going that long but it is amazing that, that the number of young over 400 young people a, a year uh, and mm. it, you know and, and of course 
trying to find funding in these times is not easy. Um, I know. And well, a, a nod there, when, just as you, you mentioned that, to Debenhams Ottaway, local solicitors. Now, they've been back, um, like uh, Youth Talk was their charity um, partner for the last four years. And in this period, they've held various fundraising events, you know, bake sales, photo competition, bingo nights, triathlons. They even provide pro bono legal advice and offer their meeting space. And they over that time, they've raised more than £10,000. Wow. Um, which is like 200 of these sessions. And then mm. they just brought that to a close. And obviously, you know, can't come to, you know, to it forever. But um, really no. worth highlighting when well, there's a remarkable amount of money. And I know that in this past year, they've been the one of the mayor's chosen charities as well. The St Albans mayor um, normally has a couple of no- nominated charities for the year and Youth Talk were, were those as well. So it's wonderful to see them out there getting this support. But But I'm sure they could do with so much more. And so, yeah, absolutely. Again, we will put their link into uh, into the description of this episode. Uh, so, youthtalk.org.uk. If you want to find out more, if you need um, their services or you would like to uh, support them in some way, do check. Yeah, them I think out. The support is the is the key thing at the moment. You know, that if anyone, any business or any organisation wants, you know, is looking for a charity to get involved with, then they're a great one to back. Okay, yeah, we, we've had um, their CEO, David's been on here before, and uh, we're actually in the, in the midst of negotiating, getting him back on to talk about what they're up to now and, and, and looking ahead to what's next for them. Uh, but but yes, uh, do, do support them if you can, and uh, to find out more about how you can do that, check out youthtalk.org.uk. Claire Hobber, literary correspondent for the St Albans podcast. Tell us about your next choice uh, in your uh, selection of anti-war books for this month. So this is one called Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, written in 1961. And it's another one that that lives on as being a classic and a must-read. And particularly, again, it focuses on the futility, the circularity, the bureaucracy of war. And rather like the last one, Joseph Heller um, enlisted at at the age of 19 and fought in World War II and is writing ostensibly about World War II. But actually uh, his experience of the Vietnam War at second hand uh, also feeds into this um, war in Korea as well. So uh, he's talking about the the title Catch-22 is the really well-known phrase, and I guess everybody understands that it's a a paradoxical point. So um, I've got the quotation from the book Mm -hmm. where it's actually explained. There was only one catch, and that was Catch-22. So it's obviously out of the regulation book. Uh, which specified that a concern for one's safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind. So a particular soldier called Orr was crazy and he could be grounded. All he had to do was ask. But as soon as he did ask to be grounded, it would indicate that he was no longer crazy and that would mean that he would have to fly more missions. Or would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't, but if he was sane, then he had to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to, but if he didn't want to, he was sane and he had to. So there's no way out for this soldier who has gone mad as soon as he asks. 
to not to fly any more missions because with mental health, they'll go, aha, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's sane and he has to fly the missions. So if you keep flying, yeah. you're insane yeah. and you don't have to fly anymore. If you ask to not fly, you're sane. So you have to keep flying. Exactly. And that's, that's catch 22. Yeah. Well, there you go. I wonder how many people know that because that, that's such a commonly used phrase now. Uh, and and people i think know the concept of catch 22 that that you know that, that, that there is no win you know it's it's yeah you know it, it and it's yeah like you say it's a paradoxical loop um but but i wonder how many people who perhaps even know it's from a book but know what catch 22 is from that book so that, that, that's interesting there um yeah. so, so it seems like then in some ways this is similar ground to kurt vonnegut's novel that we've got something else set in world war ii but written after world war ii and also using humor yeah indeed um using humor more notably very black humor i have to say so i'm sure that a lot of it is based on his real experiences so every time they think um these are airmen every time they think that they have run the number of missions that they're required to run before their service has finished, the number of missions is upped so that by the end of the book, it's 80 missions. Well, your chances, I don't know what the statistics were. Your statistics um, for survival were, were not high. So to require somebody to fly um, 80 missions is, is effectively saying you have to fly until you die, which is um, a horrible position to be in. Apparently, the writer, Joseph Heller himself, flew 60 missions during world war ii can you believe it wow and and you can you can imagine well maybe you can't imagine what that might do to one's sort of psyche to to to, to you know because it was a, it was a uh, bomber uh, missions weren't they so you know i guess at some point you'll reflect on that and you'll think well well if they were all successful just how many how many lives would have been lost in your at your hands you know that's gonna that's gonna play on one's mind isn't it and and yeah, you can you can very much see where that, um, you know, where, where the premise of Catch Twenty Two comes from, you know, yes. in, in his own experiences there. Uh, but again, this is another book that is, is 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 very widely considered to be an all-time classic and another classic of American literature as well. Uh, and and um, is this how does this compare with um, with with Vonnegut's novel that you recommended earlier? Is, is this also a a shorter read? Is that is this is this quite um dense is it easy to follow does this is a much chunkier book but it doesn't go off on such wild flights of fancy so there are there are it's somewhat surreal but i have a feeling grounded in reality so there is one of the most sinister characters is an officer called milo minderbender who's <laughs> building up a sort of black market empire using army resources to transport and uh, to provide uh, ration foodstuffs across Europe and move stuff around in Europe. And this man is lining his own pockets to an extraordinary degree um, with the help of, of the armed forces. And I think I can imagine him being based on, I don't know if he is, I can imagine him being based on a real character. And there are you know, things that happen that are weird, but you can imagine people under intense pressure doing that. So. Um, one of Eusarian is the main character and one of his friends falls in love with a prostitute in Rome in spite of the fact that she really doesn't care. She's not even bothering to feign, you know, love for him, but he pursues her romantically and relentlessly. And you can imagine, actually, you know, that a man 
under terrible pressure might do that. And uh, yeah, so I think it's it's it appears slightly surreal, but I think possibly that's the surreality of war that it does actually create these completely bizarre circumstances. So it's more connected to reality than uh, the Vonnegut novel. But again, it took him a very long time to process this. So I think he got a commission for this book on the basis of a first chapter really very quickly and then spent about 10 years writing it. So it was such a, I, I think he wanted to do the experience that he'd had, justice, you know, and uh, talk about the cynicism and the darkness and uh, the futility of it. You saying that it took him about 10 years to write it now makes slightly more sense with what I found out, which is that there's a sequel to it that he wrote, which came out 30 years later. So so I guess that, that fits within his process. But he wrote a book called Closing Time, which is the follow up to Catch-22 and uh, returns to some of those characters who are now, you know, 30 plus years, 40 plus years on from, from where they were in the previous book. And it again features is it y- Yossarian and Milo Mindbender. And, yeah. and a couple of other characters as well along the way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't know that there was a, a sequel to what, what, is, what is one of you know, the classic all-time books. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, Closing Time is its name. I must, yeah, I vaguely remember coming that, out, com- that coming out and thinking, I must read that, and I haven't done it yet. But um, I think, actually, it, both the books that we've had so far, like, you read them and it's quite an experience and you're glad you read them, but they are upsetting, you know, in some way you, you're glad you don't necessarily want to go back and do it again. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think sometimes some, some great books that I've read, you get that exact feeling, you know, as much as you've enjoyed it or, or maybe sometimes a, a film. Uh, I, I recently saw the, the Mel Gibson uh, take on the last uh, hours of Christ, you know, the passion of the Christ and, and as powerful as I found it, I don't think I ever want to watch it again. Um, you know, it was, uh, and I guess you get that sometimes with books as well. Yeah, I felt like that about the film Schindler's List, and I did know somebody where they went and sat through that very long, very traumatic film. And then right at the end, something happened to the, in the projection room, and they couldn't show the very end of the film. So they invited these people back free to another showing, and they were going like, can somebody just tell us what happens in the end because I can't <laughs> go through that again? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, but anyway, Catch-22, another must-read recommendation from uh, Claire Hobber, our very own literary correspondent. That's Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Uh, All of the books that Claire recommends uh, can all be found in the description of this episode right now and also on our website at uh, com. We'll have one more book choice from Claire a little bit later. We're back with Peter Kelleher from the Hertfordshire ME CFS support group. So, uh, Peter, um, I gather that you have uh, an, an exhibition coming up that, in fact, launches uh, tomorrow. Well, I'm saying tomorrow, whenever people may be listening to this at another time, but launches on the 12th of May. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, we've got um, uh, an art exhibition, um, you know, demonstrating the art made by our members uh, and highlighting uh, the condition of chronic fatigue. And, and similar conditions. Um, and it's part of the Missing Millions campaign um, because this is a worldwide campaign um, in that there isn't any sort of treatment, research, you know, su- real support for chronic fatigue sufferers uh, who often suffer in silence and are missing from society, you know, had fallen, you know, valuable lives beforehand. And, and now many feel they're lost, forgotten by the health service, 
might be housebound, might be bedbound, as I mentioned earlier. And, and, you know, they're just missing, millions mm. missing. Okay, so, so so this is this is a, a, a campaign at the moment then to, to perhaps help people realise the impact on society um, of of those who who suffer with this the, the, these conditions. Uh, so the the exhibition it runs until the twenty fourth of May, and it's Tuesday. It runs Tuesday to Sunday. So basically, it's not Monday, isn't it? Every other day but Monday. Uh, I'm a bit slow sometimes. I just work that out. Um, t- tell us where it is and what what sort of stuff can people um, experience there. Yeah, so it's being hosted at the uh, wonderful Collective Gallery and Art Project Space at um, eighteen. Um, Hollywell Hill, Hollywell Hill in St Albans. Um, and it's um, kindly funded by St Albans District Council. The Community Project Fund have uh, kindly supported this to enable it to take place. Um, and it's it's an exhibition, as I say, by of art produced by the sufferers. And the aim is to not only highlight uh, the campaign, um, but also to, you know, hopefully sell some art, sell some wonderful art. I've seen some of the pictures already and um, they're absolutely fantastic. We've got some really talented artists. Um, and, you know, we're a voluntary group. We're a local group. We do receive um, some grant funding from time to time, but we have to kind of make up our own funds, really. So by people buying art uh, in, uh, from this exhibition or even going along to see it and raising your awareness, that would be fine too. Um, just go along. It's free to attend um, and have a look and see what you think. Okay. And when does that run until? So that's from the 12th to the 24th of May. Um, as you say, not Mondays. Um, and it's being um, opened uh, on the 12th of May uh, towards the end of the day by um, Annie Brewster, the uh, Vice Chair of Hearts County Council, who herself has previously suffered from uh, ME, chronic fatigue. And, um, you know, we're very grateful for her for coming along uh, to raise awareness of the cause. Okay, well, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's great to have her on board too. Uh, and, and, and somebody who's been quite a campaigner and, and a champion of these sorts of causes over, over the years. So, um, if if people want to come along, um, then it's. Do you know what time it's open? Yeah, it's ten a.m. till four p.m. So it's during the daytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, in central St Albans, easy to get to. Yeah, um, it's not a massive gallery, you know. Um, and if you've got uh, mobility issues, it might be uh, a little bit tricky because it's on Holywell Hill. It's a little bit steep, as we know. Um, but you know, they've been very helpful in in helping us uh, source the space for this and. Um, you know, be very grateful if people can come along um, and and take a look, you know, and, and you'll also see a few surprises. Um, part of the Millions Missing campaign, which is um, around, you know, it's a, it's a global campaign. There's, you know, 30 million sufferers around the world, it's been estimated. Um, part of the campaign is producing a pair of shoes that the person used to wear uh, when they used to dance or when they used to go to work or used to play football or whatever it is. And, uh you know, these are going to be exhibited as well at the art exhibition just okay. to raise awareness of that campaign. Wow. That sounds, sounds quite an impressive uh, and powerful um, exhibition there. And, and just seeing those, because the shoes can say so much, can't they? You'd see them and you would look at football boots or ballet shoes or, or, or you know, workman's boots or, or whatever it might be. And and that, that really will sort of, I think, resonate with, with, with people viewing that to think, well, you know what, those are activities that those people used to be able to do and and you know just it just hits home a bit more that uh millions missing uh campaigning well it's a very per- they're very personal items aren't they i suppose the things that we used to wear when we used to take life for granted um yeah. you know and and it's just a, a physical symbol of a life that is is, is kind of missing at the moment um 
you know, it's not without hope. People do recover uh, from time to time. There are some things that people can do that may help them. Um, there's no magic cure, unfortunately. Um, very little money being put into research uh, centrally, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, one of the benefits of long COVID, if I can call it a benefit, and, you know, I've suffered from COVID and I've had family members, you know, that passed away suffering from COVID. So I'm not making light of the subject at all, but there's millions of pounds going into long COVID research at the moment. And it's such a similar condition that we just remain, you know, optimistic that some good will come of this at some stage in the future. Um, and and some healing will be had by, by some of our many members. And am I right in thinking that, that, in fact, you open your doors to those who are suffering from long COVID as well in, in your support group? Yes, we do. Yes, a whole range of um, viral disease, you know, viral syndromes, um, all to do with fatigue and, and similarities with long COVID. Uh, I've got friends suffering with long COVID at the moment. You know, they're so similar to chronic fatigue. You know, it's, it must all be wrapped up together somehow would be my take on it, you know. But, yeah. Uh, Time will tell, I hope. And, you know, in in the same way that we've seen, you know, the advances with cancer over the years, you know, we just hope, you know, at some stage the research will produce dividends. There's lots of of, of great people doing things for free and some doctors doing things for free and in the background trying to make things happen. It just needs a bit of a impetus behind it, really, some coordinated approach and some some government notice really in terms of uh, yeah this is important uh, you know because I mean even long COVID it's estimated that about 1.7 million people in the UK have long long COVID which is COVID that lasts longer than four weeks is the definition at the moment so it's it's a big problem and it's only going to grow unfortunately Danny at the moment. Well perhaps then yeah maybe the silver lining in all this is if there's a lot of uh, research money being put into long COVID that perhaps along the way that will also have benefit to the other um, you know sufferers of those conditions that we've mentioned. Uh, and the exhibition this year Danny is in kind of loving memory of uh, kind of a couple of members of our group who have passed away this year it's Sahil and Martin and um, you know we just our, our thoughts are with their families. Peter, tell us about the website if people want to find out more about uh, your group and about what's going on. Yeah, so we've got a, a Hertfordshire-based website, which is uh, org. That's all one word, org, And that's the Hertfordshire group. You can join uh, as a member on, on the website. It's absolutely free. Um, and it's, it's, um, you know, it's just run by volunteers, so um, it might not be you're all singing all dancing uh, kind of thing that you see with some of these big businesses but we're we're kind of proud of it because uh, our founder Maxine uh, did it and uh, you know we're having uh, we're having some great volunteers now help us out as it, as the group is growing okay um, and uh, and if you go on that uh, website um, which by the way the link is in the description of this uh, episode right now uh, so you can just look in the podcast episode description you'll find the link for the hearts MECFS support group you can also find it on our website which is uh, stalbanspodcast.com but if you go to that website you will see uh, details about about the organization about how they can support and about the exhibition coming up as well but in the meantime peter thank you so much for sharing something of your story and and for telling us about this this wonderful group and we wish your art exhibition every success danny thanks ever so much for having me on and uh, really grateful for your time uh, this afternoon hi i'm elspeth jackman inviting you to listen to my podcast one-to-one with elspeth find a local person with a story and i'll be there to draw out all those little details you want to know about if i'm fascinated so will you be Each week I'll be talking to an interesting character who has a tale to tell. 
and the beauty of it is you can listen whenever you want to. To find the podcast, go to your podcasting platform of choice and search for the St. Albans Podcast. Alternatively, go to stalbanspodcast.com slash Elspeth. That's one-to-one with Elspeth, part of the St. Albans Podcast in association with the Hearts Advertiser. You never know, you could be my next guest. Claire Hobber, our very own uh, literary correspondent, is here with more book um, recommendations for us to consider. This time around, we're looking at anti-war novels, and now it's one that was written more recently. Uh, it's Birdsong by Sebastian Fox. Indeed, that so of the authors that I've mentioned today, Sebastian Fox is the only one that didn't fight in the war that he wrote about. What he did instead was he used a lot of written and oral histories, the diaries, the accounts, the um, witness statements of men who had fought in World War One, and he used them to inform his novel. And I think he has the longer perspective as well, writing in 1993 about a war that occurred in 1914 to 18. He's writing, unlike the other two, he's also writing about a longer ago war, the First World War. And um, he has the perspective that even down the generations, there is trauma passed on and trauma lasts. Okay. Uh, So, um, yeah, tell tell us a bit more about, about this particular book then. Okay, so the hero is Stephen Raisford. So in time of peace, he's a textile manufacturer. He gets sent to Amiens in Belgium to find out more about the processes, the weaving processes, I believe, of a particular factory uh, where he falls in love with the second and younger wife of his boss in this factory, a woman called Isabel. So um, there is their, they have an affair, there is their love story, uh, but she leaves him. And when war breaks out in 1914, Stephen Raisford is only too glad to sign up. I think there's a lot of patriotism, there's a lot of feeling that this will give his life purpose, and so many men must have felt like that. They, you know, I can't imagine that in the current day and age you would get people queuing to sign up in such numbers. Um, but he, he, he signs up, goes off, and he makes a friend there um, whose surname is Weir. And what he finds at the front is, of course, what, what we know that he will, which is um, death all around him, his men dying in numbers, the sort of the horror of, you know, body parts and dead bodies in the trenches, the dehumanising effect of fighting that war in the mud, in the trenches. And uh, he begins to feel that war, and here's the quote, war is nothing but an exploration of how far men can be degraded. So it just seems to go on and on. When you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. This sounds like a very different uh, type of uh, anti-war book to the first two, which which in some way sounded similar that you know, in, in that they used humour to to um, to perhaps try to convey their, their serious topic, maybe dark humour, that this sounds like it's perhaps more, I don't know, um, sort of more serious and, 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 and more of a romance angle to it? Yeah, I guess it's different, isn't it, in that Sebastian Forks hadn't been through this, so he uses a classic, whereas their structures are perhaps circular or fractured, you know, in Kurt Vonnegut's case, more fractured in 
um, Heller's case, uh, the futility is emphasised through the circularity of things coming round again. Um, Fawkes himself hasn't been traumatised by the experience of World War One. He's right, trying to write from the point of view of somebody who has, and it's commonly thought very successfully managed it really to convey the horror of World War One. But at the centre, there is a classic structure of um, what we call time slip. So he's got two narratives um, going on at two different times. Uh, the, the second narrative is Elizabeth Benson, who is the granddaughter of Stephen Raisford. And it's her story as well, how she um, has traumas in her own life and uh, must must conquer them. To be honest, as I'm trying to describe her story, I've got less of a memory for it. The, the one that sticks with you is the World War One story. Yeah. Um, uh, where he does, by the end as well, he does find his previous girlfriend, Isabel, um, but she has now fallen in love with a Prussian soldier, a German soldier, and um, is no longer interested in him. And um, so even that is, is a blow. Uh, but there is, at the end of Stephen's story, there is hope where he, you think he can go no further uh, in his dive to the bottom he is trapped deep underground with a dying miner who is one of his soldiers um because a german has blown up their troubles uh, their tunnels so in those days you would one of the ways of getting underneath enemy lines rather than running across the top and getting shot to pieces was to dig underneath them and plant a massive great bomb and blow them up that way but it was very risky so the germans have blown up their tunnel and stephen imagines that he's going to die down there with this other dying man but actually, um, just at that moment, the armistice is declared and he's saved by enemy soldiers. The war is over and the guns are no longer firing. And as he comes to the surface, he and the enemy soldiers embrace one another. And this is where the bird song comes in. He can hear bird song. So there's a note of hope for the future. Okay. So, so, so the title then is, is, is really giving us some hope. Um, so it, you know the way the way then that that is that is used would that be right yeah we both wondered didn't we mm. as well whether in kurt vonnegut's book the bird song is exactly the opposite it, it signals futility the question that the bird is asking at the beginning remains unanswered at the end and never will be answered but in this book the bird song signals hope now whether they're about different wars yeah Fawkes is about world war one and vonnegut's about world war two but whether whether Fawkes did this knowingly, knowing, you know, sort of wittingly referencing the importance of birdsong in the Vonnegut book, I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's um, that's Sebastian Fawkes and birdsong. Uh, I didn't realise that it's actually part of a, a very, it's, well, it describes it a loose trilogy and it's the second book of, but is that more just about, it, 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 the, the stories aren't that connected. Am I right in saying that, or, or are they? Yeah, I've read all of them. Okay, um, and I think the next two actually are about World War Two rather than World War One. So they're set in France, and actually, that the, that the distressing thing is that after World War One, they thought that was the war, war to end all wars. That's what we called it. Mm. They thought there'd be no more wars, and it was the, the children of the people who fought in that war. 21 years later, who then had to fight in World War Two? Mm. So, um, so they are not that far apart in time, I guess. Um, set in, I think, similar areas of France, but not. I don't think it takes characters from one novel to another. 
No. Okay, but yes, that's um, that, yeah, that's apparently part of his um, very loosely described um, French trilogy, uh, and, and uh, yeah, but but the one that we're talking about today is Birdsong, uh, probably one of his one of his best known books. I thought I, I know I know he's done others that perhaps would be quite well known as well, but Birdsong certainly a very very highly acclaimed uh, book for Sebastian Fox, wasn't it? I think that was his breakthrough one, and he's written he's been quite prolific. He's written many books some of which are, are better and better known than others. And I think, as you say, this is um, early on his breakthrough book, a really um, a landmark book for him. Sure. OK. Um, Claire, thank you uh, for that. Uh, the, all of Claire's suggestions are in our episode description right now, uh, and you can also see them online at com. Claire is in the midst of a creative writing course that, that is, is happening on Wednesdays uh, at uh, Books on the Hill. Uh, runs through to the 18th of May, and we'll include information about that in our description right now as well, and also, again, on our website at com. Claire, thank you very much. We'll catch you next month. One more news story now from uh, Matt Adams from the Hearts Advertiser. Matt. Yes, well, it was uh, 25 years ago, May 1997, that St Albans welcomed only its second Labour MP. Uh, that was Kevin uh, Kerry Pollard. Uh, and I think it's really quite momentous to see how the political landscape has changed in that time because we've had a district council election last week in which not only are there no longer any Labour councillors, at all on the district council, but the Conservatives have been utterly destroyed. Um, before the election, they had 23 councillors. Now they have four. The Lib Dems have 50 out of 56. It's an unprecedented victory. I don't think I've ever seen the like. And did you have any sort of inkling it was going to go this way beforehand? Not, no, not at all. We were told all along, we, that, and the, what we, the feeling we got on the street was it was a very close run race. Um, and so we saw, you know, we were we were covering the election live throughout the um, afternoon. It went went on until late, the sort of early evening. We f- f- finished about half seven. Um, but the first result came in, and it was a standard, you know, um, Lib Dem Chris Brazier was re-elected for Coney Heath Ward. You know, and then there were um, a couple more trickled in. And then we had the the first suggestion that things were not going to go to plan when um, there was a phenomenal uh, upset in Harpenden East. Now, Harpenden, um, my previous news editor, Madeline Burton, always used to say you could pin a, a blue rosette on a donkey and they'd vote Conservative in Harpenden. Not anymore. They're the leader of the Conservatives... One of the longest-running councillors, Mary Maynard, lost her seat um, to the, and the Lib Dems stormed to victory in Harpenden East. And then it was just like boom, 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 boom. What, you know, another load of, of, of councillors disappearing um, at, throughout the afternoon. Um, Harpenden North and Rural Ward kicked out all the Conservatives. And the, the, the names of people that, that disappeared, you know, it's sort of a roll call of, of councillors that have been around um, – pretty much as long as I have, which is 13 years. So we lost um, Stella Nash, Francis Leonard, former mayor, Beric Reid, former deputy mayor, Jill Clark, uh, Julian Daly, the former leader of the um, uh, conservative group. Um, these people were just dropping like flies. Richard Katoyes, who's a, another long-running councillor. Um, and by the end of the night, um, there were, None left. You know, there's a couple now, uh, three 
one one seat in Harpenden South, um, where they have three councillors, has still got all Tories. Now, that it, to put that in context, that's the very, very rich part of Harpenden, um, around um, West Common, um, where the houses are like a, you know, multi-million pound properties. Common is sort um, of an ironic name for it, isn't it? It, it is somewhat. <laughs> um, and they managed to hang on to another one in London County, I think it was. Okay. Um, but generally it was a a complete bloodbath um even by you know normal political standards i've never seen anything quite as catastrophic for one party okay well well, let's let's unpick some of this a bit so so first off you know you you started there talking about labor uh it is quite astounding really isn't it so we're not seen as like completely bashing one political side let's bash them both because Mm. because you've got labor who are the opposition who are failing to make the gains that one would think they would make in the current political climate. And locally, yep. they, they've lost all of their... They only had two, and they lost them both. So as much as the, the, the Conservatives have gone from whatever it was down to four, you know, at least they still got a couple of them. There is no, there is no Labour yeah. representation on our council. I wonder if there's know, any other council amazing. in the country where that might be the case. Yeah. yeah. Where the opposition I is mean, not represented. You know, yeah, you mean the national opposition, really, because obviously... Locally, it is the it is the Lib Dems? But yeah, I mean, um, it's really quite remarkable that they, you know, you look at that. I think because I, I look back and I thought, well, I wonder when Kerry Pollard got in, and for it to be that that exact period, twenty five years, was a really nice sort yeah. of tie into it because that's that was the heart of of the Blair Labour revolution, and you know there were loads of candidates there, but you know we didn't even see some of the the old stalwarts um, of the party standing this time Roman Mills um, became independent some time ago and has now stepped down uh, Malachi Pakenham is no longer standing you know the people the, the names that you used to see um, on the ballot sheet have all gone mm. uh, and what had happened as well but wasn't was Malachi a Pan- a, um, Pakenham standing though he didn't get in uh, he may, I think he, he, I think he was a sorry, constituent uh, 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 I think he was a candidate um, oh right you're correct sorry I, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> Only because I, th- I think he was on the balance sheet that I had. <laughs> so if, unless mine was an old one. He may well have done. I can't, I can't remember every single name on there. But again, you know, these were people that we, we used to be familiar faces. Yeah, but, 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 but a familiar no face that there. cannot get back on, that says something yeah. too, doesn't it? You know, the times it have does. changed somewhat. Now, so, so you know, absolute um, whitewash uh, for, um, you know, well, or yellow wash, really, I guess it, one, one could say. You know, the Lib Dems now have... All but six of the seats, fifty of the fifty-six seats are now theirs. Yes, yes. But is that necessarily a good thing? You know, no matter what your political uh, well, persuasion, you know that that most that, that one party dominates so strongly, is that is that good for everyone? I think a lot of people have recognised this, and we spoke to um, Chris White, who's the leader of the the council and the leader of the Lib Dems, and he said it's never been more important um, to them for them to show humility and accountability because they don't want to be seen as too powerful and without any checks and balances. And from our perspective, as a local newspaper, you know the emphasis even more on us holding them to account because there's no opposition to do so. So it really does come down to the Hearts Advertiser to to scrutinise what the council are doing and make sure that it's within, you know, accepted guidelines, as it were. Okay. Well, yes, and and it's it's good that they um, that, that that they see that and they've come out they've come out of the gate saying that I guess is encouraging. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, they could have you know it could have been all self congratulatory and and it, and it wasn't. It was a really nicely measured sort of statement that Chris came out with. Mm. 
So, so, so how did the numbers look to you? You said that you thought in advance that it looked like it could be a fairly close fought race. Did it at the end of the day? Did it look like that? Because I had a no. quick look at the numbers on your website, no. and it looked like they walked it. They the did. Attempt. Yeah, it was easy, easy victory. Really was. Um, you know, the diff- there were there were hundreds of votes in it. It was, you know, we've had in the past we've had recounts in some seats and wards, and but yeah, you know, and, not and on I this think, occasion. Am I right in saying as well that of the the four that the Tories won, there were a couple of them where they almost didn't. That it was so close. Yeah, it was, and they only tight. just picked yeah. it. Yeah, but, um, yeah, bit, and you know, in the game, who knows what's going to happen next May. <laughs> yeah. How, how much yeah. Though, do you think that this is a protest to what's happening nationally as opposed to an endorsement of how the council have run locally? Well, obviously, there's going to be to an extent there's going to be, um, you know, it's, it's a dig at Boris and Partygate and, you know, everything, you know, the cost of living crisis and so on. But you can't put that down to everything. And, you know, what we have seen um, in the last few years is the daisy effect. And that's, you know, our, our St. Albans MP, Daisy Cooper, who's just like, you know, riding on this wave of popularity that people are saying in, you know, people in neighbouring constituencies are saying, I wish she was our MP. And we spoke to Bim Afalami, who's the Harpenden MP, who, you know, is generally quite worried. You could, you know, his his response is very much like, you know, you, yes, we've, we've, <laughs> we've, this is not a good time and good, good day for the, um, for the Conservatives, you know, um, they did the elections did not go brilliantly and you know I, he said that obviously it was a it was a sending a message or a protest vote but he's saying he's going to you know redouble his efforts to speak to and spend time as many constituents as possible you know he wants to you know hear about what what their concerns are and why why they're not supporting the conservatives anymore so yeah. well I, I, imagine, I can only imagine how he must feel if most of his um, wards within his constituency have all gone yellow and only one of them has stayed blue. That that must be a worrying oh, time for his absolutely. political future. Yeah. Well, the danger of him is the opposition in the last election. If the um, the vote was was split substantially between uh, Labour and the Dems, uh, if Labour didn't don't field a, a you know a, a suitable candidate, as we've heard, you know, may well be the case, he's in big trouble. Yeah, big big trouble. Um. And also, I think as well, perhaps just a little mention to uh, the, the Greens, because uh, Simon Grover got re-elected, didn't he? Yes, my ward here in St. Peter's, uh, he's back in again. And, he, you know, he, he he's pretty fireproof, Simon. You know, he always seems to get get a, a decent whack of the vote, um, which is great. But it was weird that, it's, it's again, it's almost like a cult of person, personality for him, because they haven't managed to ever get any other Green councillors elected. Yeah, and, and uh, despite fielding a very large number, I believe this time. Um, well, I know it's one of their figures. missions to try to to have candidates standing in every seat, and and mm, even if they think they stand no chance, yeah, yeah. Um, that they, yeah, they, they is... do. Yes, yeah, so, and you know, and, and good on them for trying to raise their their, their awareness, and uh, and and yeah, I, th- I think that I would imagine that for a lot of people, they perhaps you know vote for Simon Grover because because of who he is as you said though, mm. that it's more about the personality and knowing that he's going to be your your sort of your representative you know he, he and, and supporting him perhaps over party politics yeah which, yeah which is possibly not a bad way of voting sometimes no, anyway no. and it, interesting he also said you know um they're going to hold their Lib Dems to account especially things like the debacle over the charter market so hmm. you're going to press them on green policies and, and and so on that they've already agreed to. So, 
Well, um, there is a you know there is someone there that's fighting for the uh, the other side, as it were. Well, congratulations to the Lib Dems for such a historic, resounding victory, and uh, commiserations to the to the others. Uh, and uh, and yet, you know, now you you've got even more work now, Matt, to to hold them to account, you know, hold their feet to the fire. But uh, but thank you to Matt. Uh, if you want to find out more about local news in our area, make sure you check out the website heartsad.co.uk. Uh, thank you to Matt. Thanks also to uh, Peter Kelleher for coming on today, and thank you as well to our very own literary correspondent Claire Hobber. Uh, coming up on the Sonoma's podcast, we've got uh, the film guide with Chris and Sam this Friday, looking at new releases in the cinema and on streaming services, plus uh, looking around at the best of what's on free to air TV for the week ahead. And then there's the Dagnall Street Baptist Church virtual service with Simon Carver coming up on Monday. Find out more on our website, sonormanspodcast.com, and also on our social media feeds on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are at St Albans Podcast. Thanks for listening to this edition of the St Albans Podcast with Danny Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or a podcast platform of your choice. This will help us reach more listeners. Join us, the St Albans Podcast, next Wednesday for more news, views and reviews. In the meantime, commit no nuisance. Produced by Samantha Rolfe. Logo and artwork by David Ellis. This is an independent production in association with the Hearts Advertiser. If you would like to become a community partner or a sponsor of the podcast, please visit stalbanspodcast.com for more details.